Oh, hey, everybody. Sorry, we're having guitar shop talk uh, where I pretend to know as much as Sam about guitars, <laughs> which is impossible. Uh, turn to Revelation 21, please. Uh, Revelation 21. If you've been with us for three years, we have worked our way entirely through the Bible chronologically, and we're at the last chapter that we're going to study today, Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Really great, really great passage. Um, while you're turning there, I want you to, to put something in your mind out loud. Okay, I want you, you could, by show of hands, or you know what? Just shout it out. We're going to have loose introduction Sunday here. What is your favorite scent? S-C-E-N-T. What is a scent that when you take it in, it brings you just really great joy? Anybody got any options? Cinnamon rolls. Chocolate chip cookies. What did you say? Women? Lemon. Oh, very different. <laughs> very good. Cake? Is that what he says? Cake? Cake? Vanilla? What else? Lavender. Lavender. Oh, there's an essential oil representative in the building. Anybody else? Cock. Pumpkin spice. Starbucks loves you. What'd you say? Wood smoke. Barbecue. Am I right? Mm. Man. Fresh cut grass. One more. Ice cream, what flavor? Oreo. Oreo ice cream. Yeah, there's a little bit of chocolate. There's a little bit of vanilla. There's the cream. Yeah, it's got it all. Chocolate, that's a good one. I, um, when I was thinking about this, I came across a website that asks questions like this, and then it drives traffic to its site and gets you to vote up your scent. So if it's, it's like top10s.com or something like that. And this question was posed, what are the top 10 scents that bring you joy that you really, really love? Do you want to know what they were, the top 10? Fresh air. All right, so I'm going to go top 10. Number 10, popcorn. Nobody said campfires. Rain is number eight. Bacon, number seven. Freshly cut grass, number six. Melted chocolate, number five. Barbecue, number four. Coffee, I heard somebody say, number three. Vanilla, number two. And the number one was fresh air, whatever that actually is. We don't, we don't really know, right? Now, if yours doesn't get said, oh, their honorable mentions were garlic, bakeries, and new cars, which I agree with all of those things. Um, very good. Fascinating to me in this list and those that you have said, is that they're all, mostly all like something new, right? Like freshly cut grass is like the smell of a, of a new lawn, sort of. Coffee is the start of a new day, um, or, or a new afternoon. Um, it is uh, rain, the smell of rain, you know, that's, in, that's indicative of a fresh start. Like a new car smell is the smell of debt. Um, it is new debt, it's fresh, right? And it just goes to show you how much we love new. We value new, not just as a culture, but as a human being. You know? And having to purchase something used might be necessary and might be wise, but in our hearts, we always want new, right? We're going to go home this afternoon and open the refrigerator, and there are so many leftovers. It's just full of opportunity for us to eat effectively used food. And I'm probably going to make something new, right? Because we want new. Um, and we want new theologically as well. 
It's a part of our confession that we just, we just read that God is working to make all things new. And so I want to look at a text today. It's perhaps the text of the Bible that sheds light on what the universe is going to look like when Jesus returns and we reign with him in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, it's not as much as you want to know. It's not, it's not nearly as much as you want to know. And there are no smells mentioned. But it's still pretty cool. So let's stand together and read Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Stand with me. Christian Standard Bible. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. And the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all thing, everything new. And he said also, Write, because these words are faithful and true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I want to manage your expectations just a little bit. It's really important to understand something about this, this passage and really about Revelation as a whole, especially the last two chapters, is that precious little is said about what a new heaven and a new earth will look like. Very little is said. So if your primary interest in the details of what eternity is going to be like, if you're primarily interested in what it's going to look like, I'm going to disappoint you today because the text disappoints you if that's your expectations. But if you can turn your expectations to be more concerned about what the new heaven and the new earth will be like, what it will be like, you're going to get a lot here. Uh, John receives a vision in this text, and it's the heart language of, to him and to his original audience who would have known their Old Testament and they would have been far more interested in what the new heaven and new earth would be like, that it would be just you know, better, and they wouldn't be sweating out the details of what it might look like. Okay, So the question that we're answering today, and the thing that's coming to our heart today and our emotions today, is what will it be like? What will it be like? And the answer is found in part in verses 1 through 5. So look at verse 1. The first thing I want to tell you about the new heaven and the new earth is that it's new. Look at verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. So the obvious thing that you need to understand about the new heaven and the new earth, the new universe that is coming, is that it is New. What you and I are experiencing now as a heaven, heavens, and what you and I are experiencing now as earth is going to cease to exist and they're going to be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. But it might not be what you think it means. Okay? It's funny how eventually every sermon I accidentally quote the Princess Bride. 
And I almost did right there. You keep using that word. I don't think you, it means what you think it means. That's for those of you from the 80s. All right, there you go. So here's this word, new, and I don't know that it means what you think it means. This is a very interesting word. And there are two things in here that I want to show you, and this is one of them. So in the Greek that your New Testament is written in, there are two words, at least two words, for the word new. One of them is neos. You can kind of see where we get like neo or Neo, some movie called The Matrix, or Neo, whatever, right? And that, so that just means new in terms of its time, like it's brand spanking new. That's the word you would use in the Greek, neos. It's a reference to something being new that's never existed before, like the smell of a newly manufactured car, or a newly baked batch of cookies, or a new baby. Like, God, I love that smell, like a new baby. It's so great. I love that. Okay. So that's neo is newness with regard to youthfulness. Got it? Second word, kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S. And that's the word that's used here. A new heaven, a kainos heaven, and a kainos earth. Kainos is not about time. It's not about youthfulness. It's not about brand spanking new. It's a reference to its quality. It's a reference not to duration, like it just came into existence, but it's a word that describes its quality, its brightness, its beauty, its vividness, its strength. So let me illustrate this for you. If, if you've, there's a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Any adults read The Great, the Great Divorce? One, two, good. Go read it this afternoon. You can knock it out in three or four hours. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, and in this book... C.S. Lewis, um, the purpose of this book is to, um, is to explore the reasons why people reject the gospel. And he does it through a fiction story in which people from hell are able to travel this magic bus up into uh, heaven, if you will. And the people from hell, when they get up to heaven, realize that they have ghost type bodies that you can mostly see through. So they look like ghosts there. And the people who are from heaven have very real, very solid, very bright, very vivid bodies. So when these ghost people walk around kind of outside of heaven, they're trying to walk on the grass. And because the grass is so bright and so real and so solid and so strong, it hurts for their little ghost feet to even walk around. And God forbid they actually get in the river, which to the heaven people is like, Real water, real river, but to them it's like, you know, ice coming at them in an avalanche form to the ghost because it's so real and they are so not. So this was C.S. Lewis's way of trying to communicate something to you and I about the newness of heaven and the newness of earth. It's not new in its time, it is new in its quality, it is kainos. So you see what John is saying here about the new heaven and the new earth. He is saying that in God there can be kainos without neos. Put it this way. If you and I want something high quality and to function brand new, it's got to be new in its time as well. You've got to start over. If I want a car as well built and ready to go as a 2022 forerunner by Toyota, and this may be Trey's dream car, or something like that, then I have to buy a 2022 
Toyota, I can't, for a lot of money, by the way, and, and if I want that, I can't go out and get a 1990 Toyota 4Runner to have the same quality. But with the new heaven and the earth, it's not newly made. It is new in its quality. So in God, there is kainos without neos. It's a new heaven. It's a new earth. It is vivid. It's true. And it's bright. And it's real. And it's, it's something that we can't even really truly fathom. But that's the idea that is communicated. Now, the second thing that's really cool about the new heaven and new earth is at the end of verse 1. Did you catch it? What does it say? For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. And then there's this little sentence. And the sea was no more. And the sea was no more. Now, you could hardly choose a passage in the Bible with as many varied interpretations from very godly and respectable people as this one. What does that mean? It has been difficult for people to come to terms with this passage, and I totally get why. What does it mean when John says, and the sea is no more? So some have taken this quite literally. Uh, For example, John MacArthur, listen to this, okay, pastor in California. The sea, he says, is emblematic of the present on the earth water-based environment. The earth is water-based. All life on earth is dependent on water for its survival, But believers' new bodies will not require water, unlike present human bodies whose blood is 90% water and whose flesh is 65% water. So the new heaven and the new earth will be based on a completely different life principle than water. There will be a river in heaven, but it won't be of water. It will be of the water of life. In other words, there's not going to be any water in the new heaven and new earth. That's what MacArthur says. Okay, maybe. Then you have Randy Alcorn. Anybody read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven? Interesting take here. Alcorn, he loves to snorkel. And so he read this and is ticked off (laughs) because he wants to see, you know, starfish or something, right? So he's quite troubled by this in his book. And so he says that the core meaning of this is that there's not going to be any more cold, I'm going to quote him, cold, treacherous waters that separate nations, destroy ships, drown our loved ones, no more creatures swallowing up seafarers, no more poisoned salt waters. In a cosmos purged of pollution, salt water would no longer be needed to serve as a global antiseptic. So perhaps the sea that is no more refers only to saltwater oceans. So in the new earth, there will be these huge lakes that could in effect be freshwater oceans teeming with sea life. Okay, maybe. I get that. But I want you to remember something, okay? At the very beginning, I told you that this is a vision that's far more interested in what it will be like, not look like, right? So if we're to take this vision in a very hard, literal sense, then the text would be describing what the new heaven and earth look like in part. But that would be a very odd thing to do in this passage when everything else is about what it's going to be like. Why would it be the heaven will be like this, new earth, be like this, be like this, be like this. Oh, but there's this one part. There's not going to be any water. It's not, I don't think that's what's going on here. So if if we take this passage as describing what it will be like, and if we take into the consideration the way that the Bible talks about the ocean and the sea, and if we take into consideration John's original audience and what their perceptions, perceptions of the sea were, then we're going to come away with something I think makes a whole lot more sense. And if we, if we do all that work, what you're going to find is that this is a symbolic statement that would have made absolute total sense to anybody reading John's vision for the first time. This isn't the one commentary 
in the Bible about the geography or the hydrology of a new heaven and a new earth. If you go back and do the Old Testament work and the context work, you'll, you'll remember and you'll see that in antiquity, people didn't have a means for dealing with the ocean. They didn't have a means of coping successfully with the sea's dangers. And so they looked at the sea as a very unnatural, untamable, unpredictable element where storms and dangers were always possible. And if you'll recall a passage like Isaiah 57, 20, like the wicked are like the are the wicked are like what? The tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. That's what their that's what their view of the ocean was. And you can see all through scripture a very symbolic use of the sea to convey evil, to convey chaos, to convey threats, to convey uh, the potential for danger, mystery, and the like. And here's John painting a portrait of the new earth. And he says, it's kainos. It's qualitatively new, more bright, more vivid, more strength, more solid. And there is no chaos. There, is no, there are no threats. There is no death. There is no danger. There's no destruction. There is no sin. Figuratively speaking, the new heaven and new earth, God has no sea, which would have communicated so much to the heart of a people who looked at the sea as a threat and a danger to their lives. They avoided it. So the new heaven and the new earth is kainos new, and it is void of evil. It is void of chaos and all the things that the sea might represent. So it's new, and it's pleasant. (laughs) It's predictable. It's reliable. It is trustworthy. But what else do we learn? Well, look at verse 2. John says, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So you might, you might read this passage. So you read verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no sea. And then you might come to verse 2 and say, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out from the heaven of God. And then you have yet another metaphor about the bride coming for her husband. So you, you, you might be tempted to read this passage and, and think that John is saying, first, I saw a whole new heaven and a new earth. And then within that new heaven and new earth, I saw a smaller geographical part of it, namely the, the city of, of Jerusalem coming down. Um, and, and then inside of that, I saw this, you know, like marriage ceremony tale. That's not, that's not what, he's, what he's doing. What John is doing is he's giving you just another metaphor, another illustration, another symbol for understanding to get a sense of what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. And, the, and, and for his audience, this is absolutely wonderful because what this would communicate to people who looked to the city of Jerusalem as a place of hope and a place of power as a people is really incredible. Like so much of the book of Revelation, there are these allusions made to the Old Testament. And the more you understand the Old Testament, then the more you can make sense of kind of what's going on here. And um, in some sense, so here, here's what John is saying. In the same way that I see a new heaven and a new earth, and it's got no, no see, it's qualitatively new and there's no chaos and no sin. I see something else about heaven, what it's going to be like. And the vision that I'm seeing is that there's a new Jerusalem, a holy city coming down. It's like that, guys. It's like a new Jerusalem. Or what would that mean? You know, what would that convey to John and to the Jews? 
Why, why Jerusalem? If you go back and look at your Old Testament, Jerusalem is really, really important. It was the city of the great king, which means it was the city from which law and power and justice came. It was the place where sacrifices were offered. It's the place where people met God in the temple, in the the city. They would have these great high feasts. They would come and gather around the temple, and they would do it in the city. And the high priest would perform his function in Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement, and he he would take the blood of the bull and the goat. He would offer the blood sacrifice for his own sins and for sins of all the people who were gathered around in the city. It was a great time of worship and great time of exaltation. There was rejoicing at the covenant people of God, all gathered together in the city. So it's the city, the city, the city of Jerusalem is super important for worship, for theology, for gathering together as the covenant people of God. But the city was also socially important. You guys said people loved coming to the city. Now, I've, I've We've been here four, five, six months, seven months, and I know that there are people in this room who can't fathom love going to the city. Your dream is not a condo in, a, in downtown Nashville, right? Your dream is 50 acres in Cannon County, right? And maybe, just maybe, you look at the idea of the sweaty, of the sweaty, the sweaty, New words. That's the Greek word for city. Sweaty. Um, You equate the idea of the city as that's where all the sin is. That's where all the corruption is. Martin Luther kind of felt the same way, right? He said, if Rome, (coughs) if there is a hell, Rome was built on top of it. And that wasn't just because of the theology. It was because it was a city, right? Trey and I, Trey's got 20 miles left in his uh, his gas tank right now for his car. And so yesterday we're having this talk about, like, do we come here where it's actually 10 cents cheaper at this Kroger than it is at Costco or Sam's in Williamson County because we pay the stupid tax in Williamson County? Um, Or do we wait and get in line at Costco and and pay just a little bit more but still less than the long of a 29 at the gas station by the house? Trey's like, it's just so long of a line at Costco. There's just so much waiting. There's so many people who live here. I'm like, okay, like, it's still the suburbs, man. Like, it's not the city, right? But then it is. kind of is taken over. Like, we, we tend to equate sin and corruption and problems with the city. And we tend to equate utopia with the country or maybe the suburbs, And while the Old Testament narratives reveal a whole lot more, that there's plenty of corruption in the city, at the same time in the Old Testament, there was a lot to celebrate about a city because if there are more people, yes, there are more problems, but there's also more opportunity for ministry and sacrifice and suffering for godly reasons. So here, isn't it interesting that the new heaven and the new earth, John says, it's a city. It's a city. It's a perfect city society in which the people of God collectively live in unity with and worship of the Lord among us. Even the introverts are going to love the city. Even you 50-acre people are going to live in a city. Even the Dixie Chicks are going to live in the city. Wide open. That was a wide open spaces joke. All right, you're good. You have it. 
You're going to live in a city and you're going to love it because it's important that you be gathered with the people of God to enjoy God. If your idea of utopia, if your idea of heaven is wide open spaces and just your children and family around and your cows and your sheep and your goats and your dog and and, and, and sunrises and Middle Tennessee hills. And I, this is God's country. I'm with you. Like, I get it. But if that's it, it's not, that's not what's being conveyed about the new heaven and earth. You need to get excited about being with the people of God. Have you ever heard of Maharishi, Iowa? This is a... Because we, we have long been in search for a utopia. Long been in search as a people. Maharishi, Iowa. Real place a one-square-mile city in Iowa, incorporated in 2001. It is the only city in the country built on the principles of transcendental meditation. Hence the word Maharishi. The practice has been going strong since the Beatles introduced it to the wider world in the 1960s with Maharishi Yogi. Those of you that love the Beatles might remember this. And they founded this city. So you have this group of Transcendental Meditation followers who founded this town, and now there are five-person council that acts as the city's government. Every home is designed the same way to promote these tenets of Transcendentalism. They all follow the path of the sun. They all face east with a golden roof ornament. There's a fence surrounding the property. There's a central space in the house meant for silence. Each building is arranged on one of ten circles in a large constructed ring. You can see pictures of it. It's absolutely fascinating. There's an open-air observatory built from sundials designed to replicate the structure of the universe in miniature because we know what the shape of the universe is. That's sarcasm. There's a hotel, of course, a spa, public schools to teach children how to do transcendental meditation, twice daily sessions in addition to regular schoolwork for the kids, by the way. Since its inception, get this, y'all, Because this is utopia. There are no synthetic pesticides, fertilizers, or non-organic food anywhere in the entire city of one square mile. Instead, there's a large organic farming business that distributes to nationwide change. You may be eating some of their food. Renewable energy powers the city. Residents come together twice daily to meditate. We have long been in search for utopia. When I was uh, in grade school, so I go to school during the school year, and then I'm home all summer. And when you're six, seven, eight years old and it's raining outside, you know, in, the, in, in Mississippi Delta, that's like basically every afternoon from one to four because of the humidity building up, you find yourself indoors a lot with your mother, just my mother, and my one-year-old brother that I ignored as long as I could um, because he was my little brother. And, um, and so as a result, I find myself watching daytime television with my mother in the afternoon. Now, my mother was awesome, but this is just kind of one of those areas where she caved. And so I know way too much about Erica Kane and all my children and Young and the Restless and all the things, okay, that, that come with that. And I don't really, I, as much as I remember about that, what I really remember are the commercials because the commercials are geared toward stay-at-home moms and daytime television. Although, interesting fact I learned about all my children this week doing the sermon, 30% of its audience was male. So weird. Uh, anyway, I can't believe they actually told Nielsen that, but that's, that's a true story. And so I remember the commercials, and every one of the, almost every one of the commercials, so many of the commercials were geared toward these mothers who are stressed out, anxious, got too much on their plates, 
And, and I remember one commercial in particular where it just shows this mother being inundated with thing after thing after thing, and finally she screams at the top of her lungs, Calgon, take me away. Now, you have no idea what that is, but it's soap. In fact, it's bubble bath. And instantly there would be this, and you would find this mother in a bathtub covered with bubbles, drinking wine and having this wonderful time, you know, because she's in search of what? What is Calgon trying to sell? Utopia. It's trying, to, it's trying to sell peace. It's trying to sell utopia. John says, utopia. The Lord says, I see a city of Jerusalem. And in that city, I'm with my people. And we are with God. And he is with us. And that's where I want to be. That's where I want to be. So what does all this mean for us? What in the end is the practical application for what this new heaven and new earth will be like? Answer, verses 3 through 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people's. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. So perfect now is this dwelling of God with this people. So intimate is this relationship that no sin, no evil, or any result of sin or evil could possibly tarnish the new heaven and the new earth. Isn't it fascinating? Watch, look at this. Pay very attention to this. This is very important. The description in this text is almost entirely phrased in the negative. Did you notice that? It's phrased not as what will it be like now, but more in terms of what it won't be like. This is a wonderful thing. Our lives are so bound up with so many terrible things. I'm preaching right now, and the Gulf Coast of Louisiana is an absolute terror. Afghanistan is a terror. Haiti is a terror. Our hospitals are a terror. Right now. Our world is bound up with so many terrible things. And to picture an existence without ICUs overflowing, without refugees in Afghanistan, without evacuees in Louisiana, without, 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 without. That is a huge part of understanding and appreciating how glorious the new heaven and the new earth will be. The Lord knows us. He knows that we can more easily picture what perfection will be by showing us what won't be a part of it. Why don't you think about this? So do you you think that you're blessed? I do. I mean, like by and large, I cannot complain about any portion of my life and have any kind of credibility. And that's most of us. Most of us have our hands full and they're full of good things. But as many good things and blessings that we have, there are far too few for us to have enough experience with them that gives us a true vision of what heaven will be like. 
God doesn't try to relate to us by saying, hey, you know how good that pizza was in Venice, Florida that week you visited your mom? It's not what he does. He says, can you imagine a world where there are no hurricanes? Can you imagine, Rob, a world where there are no pandemics, no illness, no cancer, no none of those things? That's what it's going to be like. And that pulls at our hearts. Because we, we, if, we have so many horrible things. And God says, it's going to be like this. It's going to be none of that stuff around. And then, as if we cannot trust a mere spoken word that's been said to us here in verses 3 through 4. But we want words to read and to think about and to turn it over in our minds. God is so good to us. He gives us this provision in verse 5. I am making everything new. Write it down. Write it down. For these words are trustworthy and they are true. In other words, what that means for you and I is that if we don't claim these promises, if we don't repeat them to ourselves, we don't catechize ourselves in this reality over and over and over again, if we don't anticipate this glory, if we don't hunger for a new heaven and a new earth, then we are practicing doubt about the goodness of God. So what does this passage mean? It means rejoice that heaven is going to be new, qualitatively new, and you're going to be with God, and you're going to be with His people, and you're going to make much of Him, and it's going to be the most amazing thing ever, and you need to tell yourself this truth over and over and over and over until you take your last breath, because that is a faithful and true word. That's what you do. In other words, you believe it. You believe it. You stake your life on it because he is faithful and true. Let's pray together. Lord, oh, this world is full of mess. There's a lot of of terrible things going on right now. A lot of terrible things. And so, Lord, we, it's a little bit easier today to long for heaven. It's a little bit easier today to to go after in our minds and and claim the truth of a new heaven and a new earth where we get to be with the people that love you and, and we love each other and there's no division and there's no disunity and there's no chaos and there's and there, everything is just really new, really, 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 truly, qualitatively new. It's, it's it's easy, a little bit easier maybe. And yet at the same time, it's hard because we, we, have this, we have this tendency in our fallen hearts to want to make all things new in very different ways. We want all things to be new by virtue of a political party. We want all things to be new by virtue of science. We want all things to be new by some other means other than the return of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you make us hungry for all things new but by the means by which you proclaim them to be coming, and that is the return of your Son. Make us hungry for heaven and the means by which it will come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.